0: Listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. WDET's book club is back in swing for another third year. We have spent the summer taking a deep dive into this year's pick, Invisible Man, by Ralph Ellison, talking with contemporary authors and with you about what the book means in the context of the world today. You can tune into the discussions about Ellison's Invisible Man right here on Detroit Today and you can join the conversation online in our Facebook group called the WDET Book Club. And tonight we have our first Virtual Book Club Meeting at 8 p.m. Many of you have already started reading Ellison's novel, which is considered one of the most formative works of the 20th century, and is notable for Ellison's surrealist storytelling and the book's candid discussions of race, identity, and power in American society. Today, we're going to talk with another National Book Award winner, author of The Yellow House, Sarah M. Broom. Her award-winning memoir, published in 2019, chronicles the life lived in her childhood home in New Orleans East. The book tackles ideas of place, home, and family in a deeply moving portrait of an area of New Orleans that a lot of people are really unfamiliar with. I'm really pleased to welcome Sarah M. Broom to Detroit Today.
1: Stephen, thank you so much for having me. I love that you invited me on.
0: Yes, I'm really, I'm really excited uh, for this conversation. So let's start with this. Your memoir is different from a lot of others in that you cover your fa- family history extensively prior to your own birth. It is a memoir as much of your family as it is of you, and you're not even part of much of the beginning of, of the book. Talk about why you chose to write your memoir in this way.
1: You know, it's interesting. I I wrestled a lot with this, right? Because the, the sort of central question I was asking myself is how do I appear in this story that I'm writing in context? How do I put the world that I knew and most understood in context? And the more I revised the book, because that choice to not appear until about 100 pages in the story (laughs) came a bit later because I felt that I needed to sort of establish this world first, right? And, And I wanted to talk about what it actually meant when I was born. I wanted to talk about all the things I inherited. Uh, all the generational ideas and the generational traumas and the sort of interest, right, that existed within this sort of matriarchal family to which I belong. Mm. Um, so, though it's really unusual, it, it I think gave the book a kind of layering and nuance that mattered so much to me.
0: Yeah, uh, the the concept here in the book is home and the power and the draw of home. We, we, we were talking just now about how for you that that is about family and mm-hmm. that it, it precedes you in in time and, and space. But it's also about place in this in this yeah. book. And it's very strongly about place. Tell us a little about New Orleans East and what kind of uh, importance it has for you as someone who's from there.
1: Well, New Orleans East is a place that's about, I guess you'd say, a 12-minute drive from the parts of New Orleans that most people know. Mm -hmm. To get there, you make a kind of topographical (laughs) journey, right? (laughs) Because you go over this bridge we call the High Rise, which essentially takes you over the Industrial Canal, which which was dredged in the 20s. And the reason this matters is because the, the dredging of that waterway actually disconnected the eastern part of New Orleans from the rest of itself. And that creates, I think, a kind of mindset, right? Not only in how the city was built and how New Orleans East came to be conceived, but also somehow in the bodies and psyches of the people who live in New Orleans East. And so, you know, the thing about New Orleans East, which actually I don't think very many people understand, is that it, it contains one of the largest NASA um, uh, plants. Mm-hmm. And the rocket boosters, which have sent, you know, all of these incredible spaceships, shuttles, Right have launched them are actually built in New Orleans East. So I just found that deeply interesting, right? And ironic that this place, which was a kind of suburban experiment, this the hopes and dreams of New Orleans in the fifties and sixties, you know, it was gonna be a new frontier and it was going to expand the idea and, and and a map of New Orleans became a kind of abandoned experiment right in the 80s and 90s and it's people became a kind of footnote right to what it means to be from new orleans and i really wanted to change that yeah Uh, the
0: the idea of forgotten places Mm. uh i'm from a fairly forgotten place here in the in the Mm. city of detroit as well um talk about what that means to you and what influence that has on your perspective on, on the world. I I think when mm. you're some from some place like that, you see every other place really differently.
2: You
1: really do. It is a thing I think that a sensibility that gives you a very specific point of view, I'd say. And You know, for me, right, because, you know, the question, and of course this exists also, you're talking about Ellison, and invisible man, Mm -hmm. invisible to whom, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because the thing I know is that these people are are incredible humans who I grew up with on the short end of a long street in New Orleans East. And this act of not being on the official maps repeatedly, right, Mm -hmm. um is is tricky because it's not just about uh, wanting to belong by being on the map. It's not simply about recognition, right? Though that's important. It's about resources yes. and zoning and planning and how communities fall out of a city's consciousness, right? And so thinking, I think my world will always be framed by this part of New Orleans East where I came from, because it also gave me a kind of perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Because to be outside is also to be able to see from a distance, and that's quite crucial, right, when you're trying to be a thinking person in the world. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, your, your book is very detailed in the telling of your family's story and who your family are and how they interact with one another and sort of the multi-generational influence that they have on you. But but another uh, I guess point that had real influence on you was when your family home was devastated by Hurricane mm-hmm. Katrina and some of your family members were even displaced uh, by the storm. What was that experience of loss like? And how do you continue to process that permanence of of displacement?
1: Mm. Those are both big questions. <laughs> right? Uh, right? We've been talking for hours. Um, you know, this loss, and loss is something I just feel so deeply, particularly, and I sit in it for a long time. I think that's a natural thing for all of us, mm-hmm. and I think we can all understand it, especially now, but, you know, the the house, I didn't quite understand what it meant for me. I didn't understand how the house contained, for instance, so much of my father's traces. My father died when I was a baby, and... And he helped build this house. And so a lot of how I understood my father was through this house. And so the loss was quite monumental, right? Because Mm -hmm. it was also a house my mother bought when she was 19 years old and and sort of built this incredible world inside of it. And I think it, it made me think so much about what happens when the signpost of your life of mm-hmm. your growing up life, mm-hmm. the things you best know don't exist anymore. How do you find your footing, right? And, I mean, Ellison talks about this, and so did Toni Morrison, yes. right, um, who who was always talking about these sorts of worlds and what happens when the plates shift, right, underneath you. Um, and right now, I'm thinking so much about, you know, that the Yellow House was in my mind a kind of national monument mm-hmm. <laughs> of the sort, mm-hmm. which is maybe the only way you can write a very long book about a <laughs> single place, you know? And and it's just so interesting to think of in this particular moment that we're all in, to, to really think about, and, and thinking about you in Detroit, yeah. thinking about what empty spaces represent, right? What houses that are emptied out represent, what they carry, what stories they contain, you know? And it's just impossible for me now to be a person in the world and think about homes and houses without really thinking about the people who lived in them, even if temporarily, even if they were passing through, Mm -hmm. right? And thinking about all the sort of incredible ways that people try to find home, even when they're displaced and dislocated.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, just listening to you talk about that home in New Orleans and how you feel about it and how you identify with the loss of it, just it, it reminds me so much of my own relationship to the house where my family lived when I was born here in Detroit, which mm-hmm. uh, which I found uh, empty and abandoned and stripped uh, about seven years ago, mm. and was on the city's demolition list. They were going to wow. they were going to tear it down. And I had that same moment of reckoning where I said to myself, you know, am I okay with this not being here? Would I be okay mm. if that were gone? And ultimately, the answer was, no. Uh, I, I I can't I can't have this disappear. From my wow. life, and so I, I went and and saved it, and now it's a it's, oh, a, it's a nonprofit in that neighborhood. But I think that's a, a very common American theme. First of all, this idea of where we're from and and our connection to it. But I also think it's it, it takes on a different patina in the African American community. This idea yeah. of home and where we're from and the the way that we will defend that physical space even uh in in ways that uh that that are that are that are fundamentally different i think than than other people
1: uh, absolutely and and i think you know in a world where you feel often um and rigorously under assault right yes there there is uh, much more of i think it uh compulsion to create a spot that feels safe, right? And to think for my mother, um, whose name is Ivory, you know, my mom was someone always interested in beauty, you know, just like, how do you make a garden in this subsiding soil, right? Right. How do you do that? But you somehow figure it out and you do it because you like flowers on the table, right? And you're not going to go to the supermarket and buy them, (laughs) right? You need to grow them. And so like all the small ways that we were taught to be in tune with the ground itself, you know, to think of ourselves as rooted in place. I mean, that, right, is so huge, an idea, right? Because in in a place where we are constantly performing, often dual selves, right, um, and needing to be many, many things to okay. different people, yes. right, that that you could sort of have a spot in the world where people know which name to call. That that that's a profound idea.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, I'm talking with Sarah M. Broom. She is the author of The Yellow House, a 2019 National Book Award winner and New York Times bestseller. We're talking with her as part of our WDET book club, Exploration of Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Uh, We're talking about the concept of home, which is the strongest theme perhaps in The Yellow House. How do we define home? How do we hold on to home? How do we hold on to the spaces in our lives Uh, that define us and mean so much to us. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what home means to you. How do you think your hometown has influenced who you are today? How do you think the house that you grew up in or the neighborhood that you grew Mm -hmm. up in influences you today? What does place and community mean to you? And have you ever experienced a sense of loss or physical displacement? from that home that physical home uh, or the concept of home think about how many of us here in the city of Detroit have watched the places where we grew up deteriorate or in some places in some cases just go away as always the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019 that's 313-577 one o one nine. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to work them into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Adrian in Detroit. Good Adrian. morning,
2: and and uh, I want to thank you for this conversation because for me, my home was demolished. But when mm-hmm. I'm at my most stressful time, mm-hmm. I will drive by and sit uh, where it used to be, and it, um, a flood of memories come back, mm-hmm. and. I want to mention with this pandemic, the kids that are already homeless, can you imagine what mental stress it will have on them when they can say, I don't even remember having a stable place to live, and that Mm. part of having that mental stability is to know that you have housing, food, and just Mm -hmm. feel safe, and how can we? if there's so many homeless children mm-hmm. and they're not getting enough to eat. So it's going to have a lasting mental effect on these children.
0: It is. It is. Hey, Adrian, I, I want to go back to where you started the, the, the call and talk a little more about this place you drive by and sit out front of. That's another familiar theme for me, this idea of going back. I used to. I used to drive by the house where my family lived when I was born, All the time. And in fact, that's how I discovered that it had finally gone empty and abandoned and and stripped. But talk a little more about what you feel when you do that and why it means so much.
2: Well, I feel a a sense of connection there, even though I, I grew up in Detroit and raised here. I'm 65. And when I go back to that area, I know where this family lived. And I sit in front of the house and the memories the safe, knowing that I have a safe place to come. Even when I uh, graduated from college, I still knew that that's where I could go. That's where we had Thanksgiving, we had Christmas, and the home at that time seemed so huge, but it wasn't that the how big the home was is how many people were there, you know, that connection, that personal connection there. So again, when I say that I feel uh, so stressed and unsafe, I will just, I must find a need to just drive there there and sit there. Hmm. And there's a few homes that are on the block, but the people that are still living in those homes are like third and fourth generations of families that I grew up
0: with. Wow. Wow. Adrian, I really appreciate the call and you sharing that part of your world uh, with us. Sarah Broome, react to, to what Adrian's talking.
1: You know, Adrian, this touches me deeply because it reminds me so much of my brother Carl, who I'm actually missing now because of us being separated by COVID. But one of the rituals he performed, which has great significance in my own work and just in my mind, is that he would go to to the spot where our house once was on a daily basis. And not only that, he set up you know, a table there and chairs, and he sort of held court on this land where our house used to be. He he gave it a a sort of space in our memory and made it a real place, even though there wasn't a house there. And it just reminds me so much of of also why ritual matters so much to all of us, especially when we feel so unmoored you know, just like going back to the, the place we know, you know, and giving it, imbuing it with a kind of meaning. Mm-hmm. And that that's just major to me. So thank you so much for making me think of that.
0: Yeah. Adrian, again, thanks very much for the call. Let's go to Will in Hamtramck. Will, what's on your mind?
3: Oh, good morning. Thanks Hi. for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I'm just struck by, like, the overall sense of humanity and, like, growth and love around this um, conversation around home and how, like, our, our housing community in our country is, is mostly under attack, sort of unmooring that ritualistic, like, anchor that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to bring up the point that, like, um, community schools and education can also be have that sense of uh, humanity. Uh, that sense of home for a lot of kids, especially those who uh, don't aren't don't even have the privilege that maybe you or I might have had to create that sense of home, mm. and yet we see um, the destruction of those community schools as well, and how like our conversations even on this radio show around education and the roles of those schools and community um, often focus on like business metrics. Or bottom lines or outcomes, rather than this uh, sort of humanity-based language that, that I human
0: connection. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, well, I really appreciate uh, your call and and those comments, uh, Sarah Broom. What, what he's saying reminds me that the destruction of home or the displacement of home for many of us is about more than home itself. It is about community. And mm-hmm. the communities that that surrounded our homes in many cases are also really altered, or in in a lot of cases here in Detroit, just just devastated or gone.
1: Right. Exactly. And um, the, I I love what this caller is saying because it's something that we can never forget. Right. That that a it's a privilege to be able to create a sense of home. Right. Mm-hmm. Austin. And that you know, this is something Kianga Yamada Taylor talks about in her yes. book Race for Profit." I think she does a great job of making us remember this, right? That that when it becomes about uh, capitalism, profit, right? This thing that has that is so humanistic for many of us, right? It becomes mired in in a different. Um, sort of uh, it becomes something that loses meaning for many people, mm. right? And and for me, thinking about schools and education, that was one of the first ways that I started to know that my particular neighborhood in New Orleans East was changing, mm. because the school started to change, right? In these obvious ways, where you just, as a child going there, felt like There is no safety here anymore,
0: right? And tell us a little more about what that change was in the schools.
1: And so part of it, you know, I didn't know this at the time, but I know it now, but it was the sort of obvious lack of resources, right? Mm -hmm. So not enough teachers, too many children in each classroom, Um, days and days and days of substitute teachers, right? where teachers were calling in sick, or um, you know, and and this this lack of programs, right, for us, um, the actual taking away yes. of any outdoor playtime. I mean, mm. all these things. And as a kid who was, you know, a pretty wild kid, and also, but also interested in learning, um, it was devastating for me. Mm. Mm. You know, it it it, and and many of my childhood friends are now have paid for that, right? Because uh, they ha- they're in prison or they're not on the planet; they're dead. And I think of this all the time because it's the community itself around us, right? That's the shoring up. Yes,
0: yes. Again, will thanks very much for that call. Let's go to Mackie in Detroit. Mackie, welcome to the show.
4: Hey, it's actually Matthew. My oh, phone was cutting up. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs>
0: go ahead, yeah, Matthew.
4: I just wanted to say, I'm just like, I turned on the radio for the first time today in a while, and uh, Miss Broom, I, I was a teacher in New Orleans, uh, New Orleans mm. East at Fannie C. Williams at 1999.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, 2001.
4: <laughs> and I have to just say, as you're talking about just hearing that history in even more detail I, I i watched that that disenfranchisement but yet i wanted to say connecting to detroit that as a white person teaching in new orleans that was a community that took me in in a way i had never been taken in before and when we moved first back to detroit i felt that same sort of connection so when you two are talking about you know the similarity of place and um how important that is new orleans east when it was devastated by Katrina. I was living in L.A. at the time. I mean, it was just devastating to me on so many levels. I've stayed in touch with some of the families and some of the former coworkers, And I just feel this resonance, and I feel there's such a similarity between the people of New Orleans and the people of Detroit. Yes. And I, and, it's, and it's, um, it's profound now. And just connecting to Governor Whitmer's talk about racism as a public health crisis and talking about disenfranchisement, but talking about the way people people have outside perspectives and really have the answers to, like, how we can move through that. I'm just really encouraged to get your book and, and, <laughs> and have memories about it, but also thinking about how we move forward out of this kind of a time.
0: Yeah. Uh, Matthew, <laughs> great, great comments. Uh, thank you very much for the call. Sarah Broom I'll give you a chance to respond to that.
1: Yeah, I, I thank you so much for, for calling in. Um you know, I think that this, I love, I want to, I've never been to Detroit, but it's a place oh, that, you have to come. That, that exists <laughs> yeah. in my mind and, and, and ideas, you know. But, but I just want to say about schools in New Orleans East, you know, part of what I try to talk about in the work is just how cyclical and old these American patterns are, mm-hmm. right? Because for my brother, Michael, who was one of the smartest children, in the New Orleans school system, right? He was tested and was this exceptional kid. You know, his life was forever changed because not enough care was taken, right, in in the actual school. I mean, in his case, it was just straight-up racism, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But I wanted to just point out that, you know, these places, the way in which we try to find grounding for ourselves and for each other and the way people can come into communities and, and do this kind of work that's so necessary, you know, I, I think there's something that we all understand mm. about our ability to work together and make change. And so I'm always thankful for people who, who come with care, you know, who put in the time because the, the, the repercussions of the carelessness is, is life-changing.
0: Yes. Okay. Sarah Broom, author of The Yellow House. It was really wonderful to have this conversation with you. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you
1: so much.
0: Okay. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Congressman Dan Kildee, Democrat from Flint Township about the recent Supreme Court decision that says the people of Flint can sue the state for the consequences of the Flint water crisis. Stay with us on Detroit Today.